Welcome everybody to Martinis with Scott, episode 180. Can you believe it? 180 episodes. I have a special treat for you today as we are winding down Martinis with Scott. Don't worry, it'll be replaced with a new podcast, similar concept, rebranded, uh, hopefully a little bit more professional. I think that's what we're going to go with here as opposed to me just jumping on and and giving you whatever content uh, I happen to feel like that day. So we'll be a little bit more structured and that'll launch likely in the new year. I will give you more information about that as we proceed. But I have a special treat for you today. First, let me recap what we talked about on the last episode. And then I want you to remember that uh, the points that I'm going to raise, I want you to remember them as we talk about this episode. Um, and get into today's content. So last week we talked about three pointers, three action items that you can take immediately to improve your business. What were those three points? Number one, embrace change. Embrace change, embrace the need to change. By definition, if you want to improve your business, you need to do something different, doing the same thing over and over again is not going to result in something different. We all know that. Uh, so you need to change, but you're not going to change until you're forced to. And why is that? It's because all decision-making, all things that you do come to you from a, uh, from a frame of reference, from a way of thinking, from a confirmation bias. That is the way we all think. That is the way humans process information. They decide first and then they look for facts that support that decision. They they ignore facts that go against that decision. They rationalize facts to support their decision. That is the way humans thinks. And until you change your frame to make a material change in your business, until you change your frame, the way that you think about things, you're not gonna succeed in changing your business as a leader. You're not going to be a turnaround leader doing something different, okay? So you need to change your frame. But you're not gonna do that until you find a, a reason to do so. We talked, uh, I talked on the last episode of Martinez with Scott, but the concept of, a, of an addict. Uh, you know, addicted to whatever, drugs and alcohol, and they can't see, they have a frame of reference. They just can't see the damage that they are causing to themselves and others. They can't see it, but everyone around them can see it. It's really an interesting um, statement about the human brain, a sad statement, but an interesting statement about the human brain and addiction. And it's the same in business. I talked to you about how I walk into troubled companies all the time and do a listening tour where I'm listening to employees and the people on the operating, like in operations, the people that are actually doing the work know what's wrong with the company. They know how to fix it. Now I'm not saying they're 100% right because that's not their expertise, but everybody has a different view. And the only people that can't see that they're in trouble and can't see that things are going astray is the leadership because they have a frame, right? They have a frame and they haven't changed their frame until they hit rock bottom, until the bank calls the loan, uh, until uh, suppliers cut them off and until they start missing payroll, something disastrous has to happen, which is the business equivalent of hitting rock bottom. And then they say, oh, well, we need to change or we're going to fail. We're going to go bankrupt, right? You need to change and to do that, you need to, you need to change your frame about how you think about things. And to do that, you have to have an impetus. You have to have something that struck or a system that, that causes you to change your frame and to start trying new things. And I think your two options for that are to be forced into it by somebody else by hitting the business equivalent of rock bottom or having a system in place that I have suggested to you that the system in place is to understand the critical key performance indicators, KPIs, the critical KP, uh, key performance indicators in your business, just a handful of them, three, four, five KPIs, track them relentlessly, have a system for doing that. And if they're moving in the wrong direction, panic. That's what you need to fix. 
before you do hit rock bottom. And there's a way to change your frame. If your KPIs are going in the wrong direction, you're doing something wrong and you need to change. If you want to improve your business today, if your business needs improving and you want to do it today, you need to change. Uh, you need to embrace the need to change. Okay, point number two was understanding your KPIs, right? How do you do that? And we talked about the financial tools that you require, every business requires, if they want to implement change, if they want to know where they are heading. I call this the aim. What is my aim? I got to change. What do I need to change into? You need to understand your KPIs to know the direction that you need to go to turn around your business. We talked about a 12 month, uh, sorry, a, a, a three to five year rolling financial, monthly financial model. And this is a spreadsheet that has your historical actual financial results month, month by month and year by year, and then projects out month by month for some significant period of time. And it's all driven by assumptions. I won't go over again how to build that model, but I will be on uh, on future episodes and you can find it in past episodes as well. You build this model and when you do that, you have to have an assumption for every line item in your financial statement. And an assumption is, a, is another word for a KPI, for a key performance indicator. And what you're gonna find is three, four, five of those assumptions are the only ones that really matter in terms of projecting cash flow and profitability. For example, if you are a manufacturing company, it's probably gonna boil down to, this is just a hypothetical example, it's probably gonna boil down to revenue, it's going to boil down to direct materials. So the cost of your input as a percentage of revenue would be the KPI. Uh, your fixed costs, so your overhead, will be a good KPI, X amount, uh, X amount per month. Um, your collection period on your accounts receivable expressed in days, right? It takes 45 days on average to collect my receivables. And your payables expressed in days. So when I buy something, I pay it, whatever, 45 days later. Those might be your revenue, DM, uh, fixed costs, receivables, payables, five KPIs uh, that probably drive the whole business. And there's a million other assumptions in that model. There's a, a million other um, performance indicators but the ones that really matter, the critical ones are those five. And what you're gonna find, because I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of financial models over my 30 years, what you're gonna find is that uh, every single model sort of boils down, every business boils down to that three, four, five uh, KPIs. And so as a leader, you can now understand your KPIs and go, wow, you know, if my revenue is at this baseline, my direct materials need to run at 40%. Of revenue, and if they head to 42% or 45%, this business is going in the wrong direction. What do I need to do about that? But it's a trigger. It's a trigger for you to know that you need to change, right? And you can start making decisions based on that. You don't have to wait until you run out of money and go broke and hit the business equivalent of rock bottom. The third action item that I gave you last episode is to start changing today to build winning momentum. In the old days, on Martinis with Scott, I used to say that this was a show about winning momentum in life and in business, and everybody said, well, what the hell does that mean? Right, what does that mean? Winning momentum, momentum is everything in business. Why? Because, well, let's go another way. This, this is about change, right? This is about you're not performing as well as you want to perform in your business, Therefore, you need to change. You need to embrace change. The KPIs give you the give you the direction that you want to move in. Okay, how do you get there? Well, to change, every business needs two things. They need well, one thing. They need resources, but of two types. They need human resources, right? They need additional talent, better talent, people with a different frame, a different way to think, and they need cash. They need financial resources because it takes money to change almost all the time, you need that, okay? So it takes resources. Well, what attracts resources to a troubled business? And the answer is momentum, positive momentum, winning momentum. Think about yourself as a potential investor. You wanna put a thousand bucks, a hundred thousand dollars, whatever, into a company. And you know that that company has been troubled, but it's moving in the right direction. Things just every day are getting a little bit better. 
the financial performance is increasing, still losing money. It's still a troubled business, but the financial performance is increasing. Okay, uh, the, the, the morale is getting better. The market reception to the product is getting better. It's got positive momentum. That becomes an exciting investment, right? You're getting at what is value is low uh, and you get to be part of the growth in that value. Now think about a company that's troubled and not going anywhere. It's just flat or worse. It's getting worse every day. Do you want to touch that investment? You do not. Momentum is everything. You need to you need to just embrace that concept and you need to create it. So how do you do that in a troubled business? I suggested in the last week's show to start small, uh, to start small and win. Focus for perhaps first on your environment, right? What does that mean? Uh, better sanitation, clean up. Uh, every trouble company I've ever been to is just uh, a complete mess because they just give up on that. Uh, clean up, paint the walls, reorganize, do something different in the environment. Why? Because it's simple, it's low cost, you can win at it, and it's visual. The employees get to see that things are changing and things are happening. Okay, so you can focus on your environment first, uh, focus on positivity, leading through positivity, focus on team building, Remember that your goal at the end of the day, your goal is to have your employees wake up every morning and just know in their hearts, in their souls, that today will be a little bit better than it was yesterday. Today, that's my definition of momentum. Today is a little bit better than yesterday. Tomorrow will be a little bit better than today. So those were my three points uh, and a recap of last week's show. Now I want you to just remember that as we move into this week's show where I want to talk to you about you, if you are a troubled business, right? So you're not just underperforming, but you're actually troubled. How do you handle your lender relationship in that situation? You have a bank, things are going badly with the company. What do you do? How do you handle your lender relationship? And you have to I'm going to suggest you have to actively manage uh, your bank. You have to actively manage when you're in trouble your banking relationship and do everything possible and persuasive to bring that critical stakeholder in line with your turnaround plan. At the end of the day, every workout, every troubled business, every lender, uh, sorry, every business that is in trouble requires an accommodation from its lender. If you're in real trouble, without exception, you need accommodation and buy-in from your lender or from the lender's perspective, from the bank's uh, perspective. In the end, it just boils down to, are we going to support this business uh, in its turnaround or like getting out of its trouble, or are we not gonna support this business? And that boils down to their belief or disbelief in management their belief or disbelief in that particular business, uh, their belief and disbelief or disbelief in the industry in which the business participates, and the bank's own issues, which you'll never get to know about, like portfolio exposure and you know where we are in the cycle of things, okay? And so, but from the bank's perspective, it boils down to, do we support you or not? And if you're in trouble, you know that you need the bank support, so the onus is on you. It is your job to give the bank everything that they need to put your best case forward so that they can choose to support you during this difficult time. Martinis with Scott episode 15, which live streamed on July 25, 2019, over two years ago. I can't even believe that. On July 25th, 2019 was a live stream uh, on this very topic. It was a fascinating discussion. discussion. It was probably our most popular show in the early days of Martinis with Scott. And it was with a, uh, a Toronto-based uh, but international uh, financial lawyer by the name of David Cohen, a partner at Gatling WLG Canada, where he currently leads the firm's financial institution and services group and focuses on restructuring insolvency, distressed M&A, corporate and commercial financing. He represents debtors and creditors and other stakeholders in complex restructuring transactions. Think about workouts, think about troubled businesses trying to get the bank support to move forward. Um, his business solutions focus advice is recognized in chambers. Well, you can go read his, uh, his biography in the notes at this point, but 
The point is, David is a world-leading uh, expert uh, lawyer who, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, represents the bank in the situation that we're talking about. So he represents the bank. So he sits across the table from you, and in this discussion, he gives you some insight on how to deal with your bank, how to manage your bank. Those are my words. He didn't like that framing that I put forward on that. But you, you know, from a, from a business leader's perspective, you need to manage the relationship. You need to manage that relationship. So I think it's a, I think this is a terrific discussion. And what we're going to do is I've edited it a little bit from two, well, two years ago, and we're going to play this again. There's some tips that come out of the discussion, which I think are are great. One would be to admit that you're in trouble. Admit you're in trouble. Does that sound a little bit like uh, embrace the need to change? It's sort of the same thing, isn't it? If you don't admit you're in trouble, you can't embrace the need to change. Why do I have to change? I'm not even in trouble, right? That's the, the, the primary... Um, the, the, the primary impetus for starting to change, uh, admit that you're in trouble. And in this discussion, uh, it comes out that what we ought to be doing, perhaps with our stakeholder like the bank, is proactively going to them before we're called into a meeting and say, hey, give you a heads up or have a little trouble. Here's what we're doing about it, which is tip number two, have a plan. What is that plan? When you go to the bank proactively and say, hey, we're in trouble, here's what we're doing about it. I'll tell you what the plan is. It's the monthly rolling financial model, which was my item number two from last week's show, which I asked you to remember. It is that model that drives those KPIs because now you can put it in front of the bank. You can say, here's my plan. Here's my three to five KPIs that are moving in the wrong direction. Here's what I'm gonna do about it. And look what happens when my KPIs go back in the positive direction. Stop the bleeding is another conversation that we have here. You need to stop losing cash today, not tomorrow, not when you go meet with the bank. You need to solve your problem. And and I've had lots of content on this channel about how you might do that. Think 13 week cash flow and making tough decisions. We will continue to hammer that point um, as we go forward, even in the new, even in the new uh, format. Get a turnaround team. Get someone on your team that's experienced in dealing with banks and dealing with turnarounds. Does this sound like my third point from last week, which was get some winning momentum, attract some resources, specifically managerial and financial resources. Well, this is the managerial part. Get someone on your team with a different frame of thinking, okay, a different way to look at things and with a different set of experiences. Two of David's favorites that come out of this uh, episode are watch your attitude, okay? You don't walk in there with a big ego. Bankers have egos as well. They're just human, all right? Watch your attitude, uh, work with them as the, as the partner that they are and recognize that in this situation, the tables have turned. When the bank is telling you to lend you money, you have some of that power. When you're going to the bank because you're in trouble, you need to be respectful of them. That's just human relations and don't lose sight of that and be committed. One of David's pet peeves is uh, managerial teams, turnaround leaders taking vacations, you know, golfing, boondoggles in the middle of this chaos, in the middle of this crisis. Uh, so that's what comes out of this discussion. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, again, it was one of our most popular episodes uh, from way back when. And as I'm reminiscing about the end of Martinis with Scott, this one came to mind. So, and I think it's relevant in today's economy. So I thought I would throw it out for you again. Uh, enjoy and let me know what you think. Uh, let's get to our topic of the day. Uh, so in general, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about managing your lender uh, as a business, managing your lender when you get into financial trouble. And I don't know if I'm framing this properly, but, but the way I think about it as a turnaround guy when I'm helping businesses, I always think, well, there's a decision tree for the bank. Are we going to support these people? Right? Are we going to help them get through their workout or whatever they're trying to do? Or are we not going to support them? And, and everything that we talk about today is about how to manage the bank to get them to support you for whatever it is that you want to accomplish in your turnaround. Is that a fair framing for this? Yeah, I mean, you know, they might not like the word managing. They might like no, they would the word it. working with the banks. 
um, it's sort of like uh, you're in a river and you're swimming. You can swim with the current or you can swim against the current. And everybody knows what happens when you swim against the current, unless you're a very strong swimmer and you've got a lot of people around you in, in boats, you're going to drown. And so you want to swim with the current as much as you possibly can, or at least across the current. Acknowledge that there is a current. Yeah. That would be a good first start. <laughs> um, yeah, look, a financial institution is, is, is a provider of capital. But what they really are in your business and what you need to recognize is, is they're a stakeholder. Yes. And why you don't understand that on the first day as a business owner is because when you're dealing with the healthy side of the bank, the side of the bank that sold you the business, that wants to book your loan and wants to, to, to help you succeed in your business, they are very much in a marketing and sales mode in the beginning. Yes. And then they, then they move into fairly quickly a, a, a maintenance and observation, which is where you get all of your financial covenant tests and your periodic financial reviews and your periodic visits from the bank. And if you've got an asset-based lending deal, you might have auditors in counting yeah, inventory yeah. and testing your AR, etc. When you get into trouble, your 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 matter inside the bank may not immediately move to the uh, to the to the people who manage troubled situations, the special loans units. The special account management units, whatever you want to whatever call calling it. Um, in the old days, the black hats, right? Is that what they called them? A long time ago. It was a long time ago, <laughs> and and I've been doing this for thirty years, so I remember. Uh, I remember that now. Uh, what people in full and plain disclosure, I act for banks and I act for debtors, um, and I like doing both a lot, both with the same goal: helping the business survive. Yeah. If it can survive, and if not, providing a the best possible exit that you possibly can, either in whole I have, I have or in part. Two questions that came out of what you just said. Uh, one on that point that you just made. Um, uh, what what percentage of lawyers on this street that deal in what you you do? What percentage of them are actually trying to find a good workout solution? versus just tell the lender, you know, they take the low risk option of take, uh, just telling the lender, there is no creative solution here. Let's just be aggressive with them and litigate and bring in the trustees. And, you know, I, because I think it's a healthy percentage to the to the latter part of that. I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> I'm not asking for names, just no, a percentage. No, one. I don't even know what the percentage. Here's what industry, I mean. It's an industry it's question. Industry. I would tell you that there is a shift happening in the industry that, that you know, 15 years ago, there were more liquidators and slash and burn people yeah. than there were saviors. Um, and and that's that 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 was a challenge for people who really wanted to see turnarounds. And it was a challenge to the turnaround management business because the idea of bringing somebody in who would actually manage change in the business to solve a problem was foreign. What they would do is appoint somebody to actually supervise the business right. to determine how to best exit the loan. Right. And now banks start to talk, you know, in the last 10 years, banks really started talking about repatriating loans from their special loans environment. So, but if you want, I, I if you want to know what I'll, t I'll tell you this, yeah. if, if that there is a distinction between, between, um, there, there are two types, of, at least two types of lawyers out there, yep. and you'll know them when you see them. Um, but honestly, my peers at the bar in insolvency, I find them terrific to work with. Yeah. Okay. And they're used to the way I like to work, which is I like solutions. Yeah. Um, but I don't like to be made an idiot by people. Either. Right. Okay. You, you know, this show is for business owners. So what I find is that they they walk into this situation with the assumption that the bank still wants their business and wants to help them get out of the trouble that they're in. And and my, a lot of the time, almost all the time, they don't give the bank the tools to make that true, right? But another good chunk of the time, it's just not gonna be true no matter what. I mean, there's just the, the group of professionals around the bank to me, as an outsider, I'm not a professional that's doing that. I'm working for the company. But they seem to me they take the low-risk solution, which is to not take a chance on things and not, which you don't do. You work hard to come up with creative solutions that may have an element of risk, 
but the risk is mitigated and and you know almost all the time you get a better solution so i just i think that business owners my point is they need to take this seriously and they need to go in with the assumption that they may not have a partner on this they need to work hard at every step of the way with a stakeholder who maybe has a bit of a different agenda and a, and a group of professionals who are advising them to the negative. Right. The, 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 you know, what is it they say? Don't go to a, uh, don't go, to, don't go to a gunfight with a knife. What's, mm -hmm. the, what's the saying? Yeah. Uh, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Um, business owners, in my experience, after 30 years of doing it, sitting on both sides of the table, acting for them or acting for the banks, and truthfully acting more for the financial institutions, uh, come into these situations with uh, either a sense of uh, annoyance that they have to be there, or even a sense of betrayal because they've lost the people that they had the relationship with. Right. Where's the warm and cozy gone? Yeah. But... The reality is it's like trust. Trust is in a bank, right? It's very easy to lose trust. It's hard to put it back in. And so how you behave in the lead up to the file moving from the regular bank to the, the, the troubled workout people is really important, right? So as a simple example, reporting, right? If your reporting is weak and you have a problem, and because you have the problem, you I try and conceal it from the bank through altering your reporting on your covenants or your yeah. your, your your certificates under your but money. David, I'm out of money, so I fired my controller. Okay, so let's talk about. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm now acting for the bank, and I'm giving advice to the banker. And I hear the first thing I hear is that the CEO of the company is now also acting as the CFO because he uh, he, he or she. Fired. Now, he or she fired, for whatever reason, the CFO. The immediate assumption on my part is, is that the CFO wasn't willing to compromise his professional reputation and right. sign a bunch of crap that the, the CEO wanted him to sign. And so he, they, had a, they were at odds with each other and he left. The moment you combine those two, it's a red flag to a serious problem in a company. And you need to scramble to get yourself a real professional accounting manager. And if you can't hire a new CFO and get them up to seats fast, fast, fast enough, there are a lot of good financial advisors who now, have, now know how to come in to a business. Yeah. And remember, when you move from, from, from the good bank to the, the, the troubled loans and workout people, which are also a good bank, potentially, they're not looking at your long-term viability and your long-term covenant pattern. They're looking at your cash flow. Are you going to make payroll? Yes. Are you going to be and able... Is this getting worse? And is this getting worse? Is, there a, is, is every day a deterioration? And what is causing the problem? Yeah. So, so to that point, I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but to me, the most important thing in dealing with these groups and someone like you is... Um, Stop the bleeding right now. Stop, I'd stop it before you even have the conversation with the bank. I'd yeah. have a look like what, right now, not a month from now, not three months from now. Right. In a cash flow statement, you stop the bleeding right now. We teach and then your discussion is much better. Is we, that true? We, that's true. We <laughs> teach TMA teaches in their in their about early stage intervention and bringing in an outside professional. And I'm not doing this to pitch Scott's services, but I can tell you that somebody who actually somebody who actually spends the money and gets somebody in to help them with the problem in advance, because I will tell you this that I have learned, whether I'm acting for the debtor or I'm acting for uh, the, the, the secured creditor, the team of management that's in there that knows how to run a healthy business with a good brand in the good times does not necessarily have the skills to get themselves out of hole quickly because they have, they have uh, what is the term? They, they, they double down on their bad investment before they decide yeah, to, pinch it, to, pinch, to pinch it because yeah. they're emotionally invested. You know? right. And that comes from this concept that I've used and taught at, at law school in Canada where I taught. I actually also taught at law school. Law school, that should be on there. Yeah, it should be. Um, and, and what I taught was that you have to look and see what what, what stage the CEO or owner of the business is in. Uh, dealing with a troubled business is just like dealing with uh, death in the family or a, a severe sickness. 
you go through four or five stages depending on how you want to characterize them. The, the stages that I use are denial, anger, sorrow, and acceptance. And until you get to the point of accepting that you've got a problem and you actually deal with it in an open and forthright way, you spin your wheels and burn money and piss everybody off. So the, the, that that works, but there it is. Ah, fuck, do it. <laughs> so, so the denial thing. This is uh, so you sent me a couple of notes for this, right? And one of them I, I I love because I've seen it. Like it wouldn't be funny if it wasn't true. Is is uh, don't go on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> we have I have I have had more than one situation where we have gone into the company, both for the for the, the troubled company or for the bank. And the first thing that happens is, is the CFO has been working day and night for a year because they've been dealing with this problem far too long themselves yeah. without necessarily the tools to understand what it is that they're going to be expected to present. And then you come in and a whole new set of demands hits the table and they haven't seen their husband or wife in about 18 months. And they immediately look at you and say, I'm booked for four weeks vacation. I'm going on a cruise. You will get me once every 12 hours when the satellite goes over for 15 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> and then they're gone. And then all I can tell you is, is that if you want to not impress your stakeholders, whether that mm -hmm. be your board, your shareholders, yeah. or your family, if they're investing yeah. in the business, or your bank, go on vacation at the front end of a crisis. So you got a 10-day notice period battling a four-week vacation <laughs> doesn't work well doesn't work well <clears throat> listen uh so olga uh and i are in the middle on these uh, martinis with scott of doing a 10-part series uh like a checklist that i wrote a long time ago the top 10 tips for how to refinance a troubled company but it's more than refinance it's, it's the same thing you're talking about it's turning around a company and the first three are this admit you're in trouble because once you've, if you if you wake up in the morning and say, "Wow, like I, I just need a different paradigm," I'm, acceptance, I'm in trouble. Exactly, right? Then a lot of decisions just become easier. Yeah, right. So that's number one. Number two is, and this relates to buying, getting buy-in from your stakeholders, like your your bank or your lender and your lender's counsel or suppliers, is identify please. who is responsible for this, because it's always management and it's one person or it's a group of people and then number three is change them okay yeah. and change can be termination it could be augmentation it could be bringing in professionals to fill that like a cro or an interim whatever uh, uh cro cto cfo like whatever it is to change that but <clears throat> to say to a stakeholder this is what happened and we're in trouble. This is why it's happened who was responsible and we fix that. Those are the first three points. Do you, do you have comments on that? Do you agree with them? Yeah, I mean, look, when I've worked with debtors and I had uh, uh, cases in the last couple of years like this, um, I went into the company, met with them on the first day and with the CEO and the CFO. And, you know, my job is to listen at first and really understand where they're coming from, where they are on the emotional scale, denial, anger, sorrow, accept, sorrow yep. acceptance. And then I'm listening to them in terms of the facts and they slowly reveal what the current relationship was with the lender. And my goodness, um, I have been thoroughly impressed by the last two debtor engagements that I've had, by the people that I've been working with. They really got it. And what they really needed was somebody who knew the rules of the new game. So that could explain it to them. And with, I didn't need to speak for them in the room with, with the bank. They spoke for themselves, but they right. needed to understand who their audience was and what that audience's motivation was, which is, you know, yep. if it's a bank, I want my money back. And exactly. I want to know that I'm not getting jacked in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, let's talk about getting help. So you're, you're a business owner. You're sitting in uh, Windsor, Ontario, or Grand Prairie, Alberta, or Columbus, Ohio, right? And you're running a good mid-sized business that got into trouble. You've got your local lawyer. Maybe he's maybe he's uh, <laughs> a partner at uh, you know a local office of a larger national firm. 
Um, you've got your auditor who maybe isn't Ernst and Young, but they're somebody more mid-tier. Um, uh, even if they are so young, I wasn't sort of picking up that. But the point is, that's the profile of the client. Um, and you've got, you know, your your insurance people and your general sort of community of business advisors. Um, and you hit this wall. What are you doing? What else do you need? And what are the pros and cons of that team that you have? Is that a fair question? Yeah, it's a big, it's a big question. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, uh, when I'm called into a debtor situation, it's because the debtor somehow has gotten my name either from a lawyer that admits, local local lawyer who admits they really can't yeah. do this. They call some people in Toronto or somewhere else, call around and say, who's good at saving companies? Yeah. I've got a situation and I might get a call or I might get a call from an accountant who's gone in and says, this, this file needs you or a CRO has gone right. in and said, this file needs you. Um, the owner of the business, the first place they'll turn is the auditor. Okay. Right? Always turn to the auditor. That's their financial advisor. That's the person who's coached them on their tax issues. And they're all focused on tax issues and tax structures. Yes. And, and, and uh, tax doesn't mean squat in a restructuring because it doesn't generate immediate cash flow and it doesn't pay employees. So you need to have a cash management type of accounting professional who knows how to maximize your cash, minimize your liabilities, and w without damaging your business too much. You also need somebody who approaches it who hasn't got, to be honest, 20 years with you and are emotionally invested in the relationship. You need fresh eyes. And, and someone willing to stand up to you. Uh, you, don't, you don't need a bully. You need somebody who will listen to you and then tell you when you are um, deluding yourself. Yes. And if you don't get that advice, you will go into a meeting with a financial institution and they will be patient with you at first. But at some point, they will look at you and say, we'd like you to get a different accounting firm involved or a different partner at that accounting firm involved. And we would like you to get a different lawyer because if you stay with this team, um, we have a drawer full of receivership files that look just like it. Right. And they'll be honest. Don't be that aggressive. Oh, uh, I am. Yeah. If I'm on for the bank and I've got really weak counsel or really weak accountants on the other side, I will uh, send a message through the bank to to the to to the client uh, to the borrower to yeah. say you need to think about your team hard. Yeah. Because this is you have a more difficult situation. This is if it's more difficult, right? If you, yeah. If you see a difficult situation and then you know they need talent, right? Right. I mean, so, these are competitors of mine potentially going in, but I want them in there. I want good people in there to represent them really well and represent them vociferously, um, but know how to get a deal done. Yes. Not be obstreperous or obstructionist. Right. And so, um, I, I, I think the rule of thumb to me for business owners in these markets that I just described, or even if you're sitting in downtown New York, but you've got sort of a local lawyer, your your corporate commercial type of lawyer, they don't do this every day. No. They just don't do this every day. And so don't change the people you trust. The people you trust in all likelihood are not the right people to help you through this process. Get other people as well. Is that a good rule of thumb? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It, 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 you can keep your trusted advisor to be in, the, in your back here. That's expensive, yeah. <laughs> you know, because you've got you're paying two people to want you one person to interpret the advice that you trust, and the second person uh, actually, you know, giving you the feedback on what you're doing right and doing wrong. Yeah, the most important thing, more important than the lawyer, is actually the accounting uh, advice, the financial advice, the CRO advice, or the or the advisory services that you. That's not even trust. really. I am an accountant. Yeah, I know. And I don't want to I don't want to pick on the accounting firms on this, but it's it's uh, because I'm an accountant, but it's it's not really accounting advice. Right? There's a set of tools to do this job, like a thirteen week cash flow and a rolling model and the documented assumptions that explain, you know, the metrics that you're trying to achieve for this turnaround. And and if you don't know those specific tools in the format that you're used to seeing and your clients are used to seeing, it's not gonna work. But you can't make people work too hard I, to understand what's going on. And the, and the financial institution may end up trying to put their own financial advisor oh. to coach your financial advisor, yeah. which doubles up your costs, 
but provides a circumstantial guarantee of trustworthiness for the information that's coming out. We have a question from a viewer. Yes. The question is, uh, what is David's advice for situations where professionals, lawyers, accountants, termite professionals start conflicting on the file, and that sometimes a new set of eyes gets hostility from existing advisors? That is a question I just came in. You're a good judge that, of business. That came from Bennett Jones. <laughs> you're, 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 a, you're a CEO or a CFO of a company. You're a pretty good judge. You have a decent bullshit indicator. And if you're getting the straight goods from somebody and other people are uh, uh, criticizing it, you're going to know it. Equally, if you get a person who looks like they're more interested in fees and is driving the process into conflict, you may realize that you've actually picked the wrong person and you need to change. Um, don't be afraid to change your advisors, um, but remember, if you change your advisors midstream and, and you're dealing with a lender, the lender is going to have uh, a nervous fit over that, Yeah. right? Unless they're suggesting it. Happens. Unless they hate that. that Unless advisor. they hate that advisor. Yeah. The other thing is, is you can manage conflict. I mean, you know, clients, um, the, the best thing in the world for a lawyer to do is to sit in a room and say nothing. And let the company That's speak. Right. And let the company speak. Yeah, if they and can. If they can. If they've got that. Sometimes when it gets technical and or it gets really hostile, uh, the lawyer can't, or the accountant or the CRO, uh, the, the financial advisor, I shouldn't say accountant, I should say financial yeah. advisor, the financial advisor, one of us will sit up and take the agenda and lead the meeting. Yes. Right? Um, and that can be very helpful if they're calm and focused. If you are a high-energy CEO or CFO who is driven in business but is, is, is struggling and you have a level of volatility because this business is so important to you, it's really important for you to pick an advisor that's calm and focused and keeps you and methodical and, methodical and keeps yeah. you on track and who can build a rapport with, you might be able to build rapport with certain people at the institution or certain people at your supplier, but uh, your lawyer may have a good relationship with other people. And the same way with the financial advisor. they It's a real integrated team. If it works together, it works really yes. well together. So also picking people who have worked together successfully before as a team in a turnaround is very helpful very because they understand. It's like muscle memory in golf. Right. Everybody knows how the swing goes. Right. So if you're if you're a senior president, you're change. So pick your professional advisor accordingly. Right. Right. Uh, pick a CRO uh, or a financial advisor without an ego, who's willing to and capable to lead, or who's willing to be supportive, or who's willing just to crank out tools in the background if that's what you want. Right. You need to you need to create that integrated team. I agree. That's really important. All right, uh, which <clears throat> this was one of my other points here. We'll sort of jump ahead on my list, but on my notes here for myself, I put be humble or sort of like what's better. And it sort of depends on the company, but my, my real question is the attitude, right? When going in to the ledger, <clears throat> um, when sitting down in the meetings, when going through this process, because of course my knee jerk advice is uh, confidence, uh, assertive, but humble, right? We got into trouble. There's a reason we got into trouble. We're making change. Here's what we're going to do about it. But there's no question in the right circumstance that just being an overly assertive, I want to say, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, part, part has your, worked in, in, from time to time. Yeah. It, from it, a debtor's perspective. Yeah. And it, <laughs> it, it, it's worked. And sometimes it, it, it scares lenders. Mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you this little quick quip, and everybody's heard it. If you owe the bank $10 million and you can't pay it back, you're in a lot of trouble. Exactly. If you owe the bank $200 million and you can't pay it back, the bank's in a lot of trouble. Yes. And so if you are if you are a business that has a $10 million line of credit that's in trouble and you want to go around swinging a big stick inside the bank and be arrogant and not humble, 
and tell they're gonna them crush you. they're going to crush you in a heartbeat. Yes. They're absolutely going to. And it's, it's just a natural reaction to it. But if you are a person that's been managing a very successful, large, you know, multi-hundred, hundred, you know, billion-dollar business, hundred-billion-dollar business, they're going to listen to you and pay attention, and they're going to try and work with you um, so you can be confident. But you have to leave whatever you do, whoever you are, whether you're the banker or the debtor, you leave hubris at the door. And and <clears throat> for a business owner, I think this is just a huge point because everybody thinks that the lenders are just cold and rational. No, no. But they're not. They're, they're human beings. Yeah. And the other <laughs> thing is, is remember, you're doing going through this for the first time. This is the hundredth time they've done it. And this so while, while, they, while, they're, while, they're, while they're cool and they're methodical as lenders, the moment they feel like they're being gained in any way right. or, or misled in any way, their righteous indignation gets ahead of it. And, and, and to be blunt, that's the business owner's fault. Exactly. And that's what, it, when you're talking about managing a lender, that's, that's managing the lender. Which comes back to my very first framing of this, which is, from the lender's perspective, are you going to support this guy, this, this person, or not support this person? And if that person comes in, if the CEO comes in with the wrong attitude that gets everybody's back up, that's going to fall into the not support because it's going to manifest itself in we don't trust this person, something's going on, maybe he's playing us. That's the way it's going to play out, right? Like, this is a big issue. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, there's no one right way, but certainly you like to see a, a CEO or a CFO come into the room and they look at them and say, we have, first of all, Crow is best served to oneself warm. Meaning, if you've got a problem, you're the one who should tell the bank about it. They shouldn't look at your quarterly disclosures and figure, and figure it out and call you up and go, you're offside seven covenants. What yep. the hell's going on? You should be proactive about it. And proactive means you go to them and say, I like, and I really like this approach and I really respect this approach and I've seen it over and over again from great CEOs and CFOs, great companies. They come into the institution to their lender and they sit there and they say, okay, so uh, six weeks from now, we're going to have a liquidity crisis and we're going to be offside two covenants and we're going to need your indulgence. Right. Here's our plan. Exactly. On the first day. Now, your plan could be a hockey stick, and it could be over. It could be two rosy glasses. But if you actually hired a CRO and you've got a good lawyer, you may have actually built a plan that has has thought about what a bank might like to see, and you have engineered something that works for them. That doesn't mean that you're working for the bank, and that doesn't mean that they're the boss of the business because they don't want to run your business. They want you to be successful, and they want you to get out of this situation. But you've got to show them you, that you've got it under control and that you're not chasing the problem, that you're ahead of the problem. So let's, uh, let's assume that we've got ourselves in trouble. We've disclosed it. We've tried to get ahead of the problem with the plan. We've got the right advisors. And now we're moving into the documentation of the bank saying, okay, we will support you, right? We're not going to pull the plug on you today. We're going to we're going to go along for this ride of allowing you to try and turn around this business, and that ends up in a document called a forbearance agreement. Maybe. So there's a, there's a walk people through what that means. So there's a continuum. Um, first of all, if you're a public company, that's a different issue. We're not really talking about that today. Yeah. But but public companies actually have uh, you know uh, going concern issues. Uh, around, you know, if they're in covenant default and the loan can be called within the immediate 12 months, they've got a going concern issue on their quarterly yep. uh, public disclosures. Um, but if you're a, 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 a private business, you may start by needing a waiver. You'll get waivers out of the regular bank. Just a covenant waiver. A covenant waiver. So a covenant waiver is, you know, you've got a tangible net worth or a trailing EBITDA and it's supposed to be X and it wasn't X and the bank says that's okay for the next month. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you got me what I mean. That's okay. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and waivers are, are 
a gentle tool that's done on an early basis when the problem looks like it's not major and it's going to correct itself. And you just need to iron things out a little bit. So you'll get those periodically if you've got a good track record and it never goes into the account management, the special account management unit at the institution if that happens. When it goes into the special account unit or the trouble loans unit, whatever you want to call it, um, it's a different situation. So they're, first of all, getting up to speed on both you and they're assessing you and they're assessing your financial situation and they're assessing your industry and they're assessing if there's any real errors in judgment or management and they're assessing your, your, your ability to execute on some kind of a plan. Yeah. And they're starting with just the information they've been given by somebody who's been periodic reviews of the business, but no deep dive. The, the, yeah. the, 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 the commercial banker, no deep yeah. dive. So what they're going to want to do is do an immediate deep dive. So forbearance agreements are, are agreements. They're basically, you think of it as a loan amending agreement. That's all it is. But what it does is it probably eliminates or um, what we call tolls certain kinds of defaults. So they don't actually, we're not going to act on them. It gives you time. But in, in return for us not calling those defaults and demanding the loan, um, you, the bank will get somebody in as a financial advisor to review the books and records of the company to get up to speed to know whether what is in fact a viable plan. And that's usually a period of between 30 and 60 to 90 days, depending on the complexity of the business. And then near the end of that process, you start to negotiate a second forbearance agreement to pick up where the first one left off. And the second forbearance agreement is much more focused on, okay, we know the lay of the land, we know what management is capable of. We know that there's a non-performing asset here that they're that they have rose-colored glasses on their eyes about, so we want that sold. Yeah. We know that they have weakness in the CFO, so we're going to get them either a CR. We're going to suggest they hire a CRO if they haven't already hired one, or we're going to suggest they hire a financial advisor of their own, or they use the financial advisor that the bank has, and we let them right. move over. And they do that. And that's a longer term forbearance and that will have in it milestones. You will sell this division by this date. Right. But not just can't close the deal. So let, so let me There'll give be interim milestones. Exactly. So all let, the way let me give a scenario on this. So let's say, I mean, turnarounds don't happen in 10 days. So let's just say the, the whole turnaround plan where you could finally get to a different lender and refinance or create some sort of exit uh, for the institution. Uh, let's say that's a year, just hypothetically speaking then a, a likely forbearance scenario would be, well, the initial one is, say, 30 days, right? And then the next one is 60 days, so now you're up to 90. And then the next one is three months, and then the next one is six months, and then you're a year, right? And and maybe the last two are combined, but they put in milestones. Right. Is that a, a good way to think about yeah, it? Yeah, that's, that's a good way to think about it. it yeah. It, it but you don't go to your bank and say, okay, I need a year, right? Or you might go to your bank and say, a year, but recognize that your lender is thinking, well, I'm not getting this person here. Oh, no, that's a financial institution, they will give you a year, but they will give you thresholds that you have to break through that's my point. every month of improve, showing some improvement or the changes or the action on the plan that's been agreed to. Yeah. And, they'll, and, they'll, and each one of those, if you fail to meet it, will be a default or event of default on the forbearance agreement, exactly. allowing the bank to collapse the forbearance agreement and act on its security, appoint a receiver, and do all the other right. things that business owners don't want to see happen. Yes. Okay. So to me, a forbearance agreement uh, for the lender is a positive because within that contract, the borrower amidst the default waives their right to you know, seek protection. This is in a Canadian context, not in the U.S. context. Uh, waives their right to seek protection, and you know, whether that works or not is a different issue, but, but they do that. <laughs> Right, and then for the borrower um, is a great deal because it spells out precisely the waivers that the bank is granting, the indulgence that the bank is granting, and the time period to execute the turnaround, which the company put forward. It's not the bank's turnaround. The bank will make you live or die on by your own plan, numbers. by your own plan yeah. and your own numbers, and in that is the actual the, the seed of success. Yes. Because the short answer to any business in, in this scenario that's doing a forbearance agreement is, um, 
you better take the time to create a very realistic plan, not one that's so low that the bank won't buy into it, but not one that's so optimistic that you're going to fall off the train on the first day on the rails. And if I might advise on this um, from a, a CRO turnaround perspective, boil that plan down into no more than three to five key metrics. One page. Yeah, the one page, <laughs> but the metrics. Because every business is driven, driven by a couple of key things, right? Don't make it a sales is going to cure everything, right? Uh, key metrics. And Olga and I soon are going to talk about uh, in sections four or five of, of the 10 things to do. One is a 13-week cash flow, and one is a, a model that focuses on these metrics. Um, it needs to be simple, and it needs to be measurable by the banks, right? And understood by the banks. Um, do we have more comments or questions that we need to deal with, or are we good? Nothing yet. We're good. Right now. Nothing that we need to address? Okay, perfect. Uh, any also forbearance agreements? Uh, make the right request the first time because it builds credibility. If you have to go back and amend your plan because you completely missed the idea and you completely over undershoot it, that's a terrible, it's a killer of trust. So no. be realistic and... Uh, uh, be committed and do exactly what you yeah. say you're going to do within the time frame that you can do it. And if there's some external in influence that causes you to not be able to do that, then you need to get in front of the institution, in front yeah. of your lender, and tell them early on that you've got this problem and you're going to need a little more time. Most business owners I work with are terrified of forbearance agreements. And I think the emotional issue there is that it really brings home to roost the issue you could read in black and white. I called them credit amending agreements and just not called them a forbearance agreement. Just to, get over <laughs> just, just to not use that word. Just to, you know, I've actually done that where 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 you don't want to scare the board of directors and then a widely held in a bigger company right. than a number of investors, and you just you just call it an amending agreement. But I've worked with a, a key lender um, in this city whose name I won't drop, and and you know them well. Um, and their head underwriter, credit guy, their his view was, why would I do this? This is, I mean, what am I getting out of this, uh, signing this contract? <clears throat> In ten days, I can a ten day notice period. I can be the exact same position. Um, why am I going to lock into three months or six months of this fellow's turnaround plan? Um, I'll read the plan and just not demand today or not act on my demand, which I already did two days ago. Um, but their view was they're just not going to sign a forbearance agreement because it gives too much power to the debtor. I have, I have in certain circumstances gone on what we call a day-to-day -day forbearance where we write a letter to the people and say, we're forbearing from enforcing, uh, it's a daily forbearance. We'll let you know when we're not forbearing, forbearing anymore. <laughs> and, 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 uh, we've reserved our rights. And I've done that on deals where the debt was $200 million. In fact, right. the larger the deal frankly, the more likely you're going to do that because by the time you negotiate the forbearance agreement, the lender's going, well, I don't have any fingers left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, because because it's a very sophisticated transaction yeah. and the negotiations tend yeah. to slice away everything. Yeah. But um, forbearance agreements are actually a really good idea for the bank. I think they are too. For the, for the bank. And they're a good idea for the bank because if you've built them properly, they 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 hold the, 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 the borrower the company to its plan and they make them think about their plan. And, they because that, and also because plan. at the end of the day, I mean, you're the lawyer, I'm not, but at the end of the day, when you get in front of the judge with your 10 day demand and you haven't created this paper trail through the forbearance of being accommodating and having the turnaround plan, well, you're in a weaker position as a lender, I would think. Uh, not really. No. <laughs> I look it, every fact situation is different. Sure. I, I think the reason you do a forbearance as a lender is because you're worried that if you don't do it, there's going to be a million dollars of costs associated with a receivership and you're going to have a big shortfall on the transaction. Yeah. There are businesses that do better in going concern sales than forced liquidations. 
your net order to liquid, yeah. you know, ABL loans are a little bit, asset-based lending loans are a little bit unique, right? They have an exit strategy. They know if, if they've done their auditing correctly and they've set but their- But they haven't done the auditing correctly. Okay, but let's assume they have. They haven't. But let's no, assume they have. It's a bad assumption. No one's okay. done that. Okay, so I have had some that have. No, you haven't. They've, <laughs> they've done their auditing correctly, but, you know, then you go to Hilco and they all of a sudden, your appraisal's half of what you yeah. thought it was. Fair, right? Well, we we had that situation. You and I had that. We have you and I had that situation. But 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 the forbearance agreement then allows you to to set a course that allows the company to recover enough that if you do need to pull a trigger later, um, you're going to get out more wholly. Yeah. Right. Um, we call it free fall. You don't want to be in free fall. Going straight into receivership is free fall. Yeah. Right, right, right. And this and comes back to: Are we going to support these people or not support them? But it and, also and is the culture of the lender. Yes. There are lenders who are more um, how to put this uh, uh, intolerant. <laughs> that would be a nice way of putting. It. There are some lenders who are more intolerant, and the, and and they and they don't trust anybody, and they are uh, paranoid. Let me, let me ask you a question that sort of ties into that, and it wasn't on our sort of suggested topics here, but... <clears throat> I don't really work for them, by the way. I, I work with lenders who want to solve a problem. You I, legitimately I do not work for them. I can vouch for that. I it's interesting. People you, bring me into a transaction yeah. that they want to be an asshole about. Yeah. They don't do it. They just want to crank out paper. If they want to, if they, they'll, they'll hire a small, a small restructuring law firm. Yeah, that, that knows how to do receiverships. That knows how to do receiverships. They will not engage me in all yeah. that. Good. Well, I, I mean, I've got people in my office who can do that every day of the week. That's the, not the highest and best use yeah, for a yeah. person like me. I think that's absolutely true. Let's say you're a business owner, and um, let me get my years more or less right. Uh, when was the energy crash? Say 2014. Yeah. Somewhere in that range? Oh, on gas? Yeah. West? Yeah, 2012, yeah. 2014. Pick any 20, industry. 20, 2013, 2014. Right. And let's say you're with a lender, and in, in this country, you could pick any lender, who on a portfolio basis, internally, they've decided they want less exposure to this industry. Right? And maybe that's retail today. I don't know. Like, you know this, and I don't know this. What do you do as a business owner in that situation? Like, maybe you've got a mild covenant breach, but today you're okay, but you've got an aggressive lender on a portfolio basis. There's bound to be another lender. If you don't have a serious problem, there's bound to be another lender who's an exit. Right. So, so what you can do is there are good ways to, to not stall, but to keep that, that aggressive lender who wants to dump you in check yeah. while you seek alternative financing. And you are gonna pay in excess of 12 or 14% interest yeah. rate for them, and they're going to bridge you. Uh, no dropping names there, but they're going to bridge you uh, from from uh, the troubled situation to a healthier lender while you do your own forbearance and workout. Yes, and they're going to have terms yeah. about what you actually have to do and what okay. you have to. Is this, that is credit it, agreement's going to look like a forbearance agreement. Hundred percent. Is right. this still working? To, is this still happening today? Like, is this happening in retail right now? Or you don't need to drop industries or names, but is it, is the concept still valid today? Well, if you looked at oil and gas. Um, 100% my, that's my, my, oil and gas. Yeah, but it only happened with with certain lenders in oil and gas. Well, the ones that were exposed to this sector. Well, but even the, but the but the big institutions that had an exposure that was normal for their exposure, um, because the value of the and they had the wherewithal because they had no exit. They had no exit. So because, it's, because it's wonderful it, when the when the financial <laughs> if you're a borrower if, if if there's no way to sell your assets and no possible buyers and the value of it in the market is zero because there's zero demand you're not your your lender is probably going to find a way to hold on to that business. That's right. That may, may yeah, yeah, so you way. understand no exit. Um, you know, in this time period when we you were in the oil patch, and I was running a, a drilling company at the time, and you get the big appraisers that come in to help the banks like the Hillcos and the who am I missing? Gordon Brothers, uh, Mainers of the world. And they come in and, and they say, okay, well, you used to have a $50 million appraisal on your rigs and today it's 30 million. Um, and tomorrow, I don't know. And by the way, there's zero bids at 30 million. 
Like we just made that number up out of thin air, right? So as a, as a lender, you're just like, I, I don't want to be in this space. I want to I want to get out of my portfolio. Just go to an airplane graveyard and where's it, Nevada? The yeah, yeah, exactly. Parked planes. All right. <clears throat> We've been almost an hour. Can we yeah. just talk briefly about Canadian insolvency? So if it doesn't work out, you need protection. Or do you want to save that for another day? We can save it for another day. If, okay. To speak to the U.S. Uh, uh, folks out there, uh, the Canadian restructuring regime is different than the U.S. Chapter 11. It has a lot of the same results with a lot of the same types of, of uh, 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 strategies deployed like uh, creditor bids and, and prepackaged deals and sale processes inside yeah. of a restructuring under our Companies Creditors Arrangements Act and our Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. But you got to know that most of it is within the discretion of the court. And the group that does CCAA filings, particularly company creditors arrangement filings, are a pretty sophisticated and smart and talented group of lawyers and accountants and turnaround professionals. And judges. And judges. Yeah. And, and, and the orders are very standardized. And they know how it's going to go. And they know how it's going to work. And it works pretty well. There are anomalies when people try and push the envelope. And then you find a whole segment of the creditor bar flies up like a recent construction company, a CCAA, where they had a plan to sell properties and and the, the entire creditor base of mortgagees, mortgagors, mortgagees, uh, mortgagees, the entire creditor base of mortgagees stood up and said, this is not for us. And just, we're not, we're not in it for any plan. We're not participating with you. We want to go back to our old remedies. We want power of sale. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sale. Um, Okay, let's wrap this thing up. How do uh, how do people reach you? Uh, you can reach me on the web at uh, www.gowlingwlg.com or you can call my office at 416-369-6667. That's 416-369-6667. I don't know if you're making this available to other people, but you're my go-to counsel on most things. And even if it's not your practice area, you allocate through this throughout the firm for me. So, so if a business owner is sitting in Red Deer, for example, um, can they pick up, you know, they got a certain issue. Can they pick up the phone and call you and absolutely, you'll, absolutely. you'll make a reference within the firm, right? Absolutely. Well, first of all, what people need to know about, about uh, a practitioner like me, they call me a hybrid because I do insolvency restructure. I don't litigate. I don't go to court because I find... You get bound into the really aggressive, argumentative practice yeah. in the, in that practice. I like to be outside of it. What I what I am is a business lawyer. You are and an M and A lawyer, and a commercial lawyer who happens to have a, a, a good understanding of the restructuring practice and a good understanding of the lending practice. I am a hybrid, and what what I am is a conduit for for business. I also I also help healthy companies. I have healthy company clients. I growth. Yeah. I'm giving you some. I know. There you go. Thank you, Scott. Thank you to David Cohen. Gowling's WLG. Gowling. WLG. <laughs> I'm Scott Sinclair. Uh, check out SinclairRange.com. S-I-N-C-L-A-I-R-R-A-N-G-E. Range.com. You got questions. Uh, you need help on something. Reach out. You can reach out to Ashley. Uh, she's on the website. Or maybe she's not. But you can find her. And uh, subscribe, please. Subscribe. YouTube. Are you subscribed? Uh, I I have to get an email. You could have had a free vodka. Oh, could I? You could have had a free vodka bottle. I'm not really a drinker. On YouTube, um, uh, podcasts are on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts. And thank you for episode 15. See you next week. You good?